0: We're going to have our Bible reading now. As I mentioned before, we are going through the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to be uh, specifically reading Deuteronomy chapter 6, reading from verse 4. This is Moses talking to his people. From verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul and with all your strength these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts impress them on your children talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with a large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, Out of the land of slavery.
1: Thanks, Ross. Good morning, everyone. Welcome uh, to uh, to church. It's nice to see you. My name's Ben. As Ross kind of mentioned before, Um, before we get started though, this morning, for those of you who've been praying for Alpha or have heard us talking about Alpha over the last little while, that happened on Tuesday night. And here's a picture of us uh, at Alpha. It was an amazing night. We had uh, 15 people who weren't from church come and hear about why we can trust in Jesus for the good life. And uh, it was just so good. It was such a good vibe. Uh, And yeah, Jake and Jerry cooked us some food, which was so nice. And our team put on such a great event. So I just want to thank you for your prayers. If you have been praying for us, I'd love you to keep praying for us. I'd also like to say, if you were planning to invite someone along and they couldn't come the first week, come the second week. It's going to be happening on Tuesday, and we'd love to have you there uh, on Tuesday as well. But that's just an update to keep you posted about Alpha. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into this word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to gather here today. Father, uh, it's a joy to sit among uh, your people and to be able to slow down and reflect on who you are and what you've done and what you're saying to us. God, we pray this morning that you would help us have ears to hear and hearts to understand. And Lord, once again, we pray that your presence would be among us, that your spirit would be here changing us so that we may know what your word means for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few years ago, Ricky Gervais had a pretty controversial article that was released around Easter time. If you don't know who Ricky Gervais is, this is him. Uh, He is... A pretty famous comedian, he created the office, uh, the UK office, but he is a very outspoken atheist uh, comedian who pretty much in every TV show that he has or movie that he writes, he has a crack at Christianity or faith or belief. Now the reason his article was so controversial a few years ago was because his article was called Why I'm a Good Christian. So an atheist wrote an article about why he's a good Christian. Now, how is it possible that he could say that he's a good Christian? Well, here's what he did in the article. One by one, he worked his way through the Ten Commandments. And as he did, he worked his way through the Ten Commandments. He began to see how he was ticking them all off. And by the end of it, he said, look, I've done all of these things, so I am a good Christian. Now, if you've read the article, if you know what article I'm talking about, he did have to do a little bit of interpretation stuff. He did have to skip the whole worship the Lord your God only stuff. But outside of that, he kind of did all right. You know, he didn't murder, he didn't steal, that kind of thing. And so he got to the end and he said, as an atheist, I am a good Christian. There's a problem with that, right? Obviously, that's an issue. But the reason this is worth exploring this morning is because this idea that you can be a good Christian, that you can do what God wants through simply obedience to the Ten Commandments, is an idea that not just Ricky Gervais has. Right? So if you think about it, if you were to ask people both inside and outside the church, what does God want from you? Right? If you were to ask that question, what does God want from you? What's your response supposed to be? Lots of people around the world, whether they're Christians or not, would say, just do the Ten Commandments. Right? I'm sure you've heard that. You might have even felt that. And so it's worth kind of exploring because if an atheist can say he's a good Christian based on that understanding, then this morning we want to explore this idea. We want to ask this question, what does God actually want from us? What does God want from you? What does God want? What's the response that he wants from you? And while we're talking about it, what's the Ten Commandments got to do with anything that God wants from us anyway? Well, this is where we're going this morning in Deuteronomy 5 and 6. And so if you've got your Bibles there, we will see this as we dig in. Because as Ross mentioned before, Moses is preaching a sermon to his people. And this morning, it's all about what God wants from them. Now, let's set the scene a little bit so far. If you've been with us on this journey, chapter one to three is all about how God's actions in the past give them confidence for the future. Remember, we looked at how he gave them deliverance over Egypt, over Sihon and Og, two big giants, and they can be confident moving forward into the future. Last week, we saw how God has spoken. The living God spoke, and so God's people are to respond by hearing and listening and understanding and treasuring his word in their heart to respond to him. Now, though, we get to chapter 5 and 6. And in this, Moses is going to preach a sermon on what does God want from you. And like his other sermons, which is so helpful for us, he's got another three-point sermon. So that's good. I thought it was four points all week, but no, it's three. He's stuck to his structure so far. And we got three points on what God wants from us, and the first we see in chapter 5, verse 1, when he says this. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear Israel the decrees and laws I declare to you in hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time I stood between the Lord to and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain and he said, "I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery." And then he goes into the Ten Commandments. So what does God want from his people? Well, we see this first point of Moses' here. It's commands, but it's in the context of covenant. Okay, that's really important. You see that twice in verse two there, he speaks about the covenant that God made with his people. Okay, it's really important that we see this. God made the covenant with his people. He started it because he's a covenantal God who makes promises to his people. Now, this is so crucial that we understand this. Now, covenant is a bit of a weird idea, okay? We don't use that language that much anymore. I'm sure you don't, but we know the idea because what covenant means is simply relational promise, okay? So if you think of a wedding, and so we see this most often at a wedding when a husband and wife gets up in front of everyone and they do their vows to each other, they are making a relational promise to each other. And that relational promise is a covenant. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. So when they get up and they make those promises to each other, they're not saying, I'm going to do these 10 rules, and if I do those 10 rules, we'll be married. That's not how it works. It's a promise. You love me, and I'm going to love you in return. Now, what we see here in this passage, if we go back a slide, Paul, what we see in this passage in verse 2 there is that God made this covenant with his people. He started it. God established the relationship with God's people. Remember, we, we know this. God created the world and then he chose a people. He picked a nobody called Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make you into a big nation. And, and Abraham had done neither anything good nor bad. I mean, he did worship other gods, but God just, God just chose him for no reason. And then he brought his people out of Egypt. He delivered them. He brought them in well, to the grass facing the promised land. God started it people weren't necessarily good. God was just gracious in choosing a people. Now, this is important that we get here because, you know, I don't know if you've heard this, but sometimes people would say, the Old Testament's about rules and the New Testament's about relationship. You know, have you ever heard that? Or the Old Testament's about law, but the New Testament's about love. The problem with that is the Bible. You, you see it here. When, when you're reading Deuteronomy, you see God chose his people He put his affection upon them. He started it before they had done anything. The rules, the laws were a response to what God had done. So God starts this relationship. He makes it with his people, and then he calls the people to respond. And how are they to respond? Well, this is where we go into the Ten Commandments. Their response is from verse 6 to 21, and you could kind of sum up the whole Ten Commandments like this, it's loving God and loving others. That's the Ten Commandments. And this is the marker of the nation Israel. Israel were meant to be marked by their Ten Commandments, which is interesting. You know, if you think about a nation forming, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought about if you could create a new country, what would be the Ten Rules of that country that would mark that country? You know, I know lots of people in our day and age, you know, we're hearing this a lot lately, is what about my rights? You know, maybe you'd come up with a country where you protect your rights. You know, in Australia, uh, as I was kind of looking into this this week, we actually don't have a Bill of Rights, technically. Uh, Which is interesting. It's almost like at the beginning of, you know, when our country was kind of thinking about it, they just had that attitude of, should we write? You know, (laughs) we'll figure it out later. But America, you know, we know America has a Bill of Rights, and they're passionate about the Bill of Rights. You know, which is weird looking into it. As, you know, for me, as growing up in Australia, it's weird to see that. You know, when you hear things like, you know, when you talk about guns... And they're like, don't talk about taking my guns away because that's my Second Amendment. Now, that always felt weird looking into it. It's like, what's the Second Amendment? But they're talking about their rights. You know, the the rights of what it means to be an American citizen is that you've got 10 rights, the 10 amendments, they're yours. Now, the Bill of Rights is what you would come up with with a nation to, to talk about the rights of each citizen, which is fascinating because when you get to the Ten Commandments, this is kind of their Bill of Rights. This is kind of what markers we have of what it means to be an Israelite. But as we work through them, notice it's not about their individual rights. In fact, as you work through these Ten Commandments, you could say that all of these commandments are about the rights of others. Isn't that interesting that the things that should mark this nation, they should be a nation all about others, all about God and all about other people? And so we see this as we work through the Ten Commandments here. So, you've got the first two, which are all about loving God. You could say they're God's rights. And we see this from verse 7 and 8. So, verse 7, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. And verse 8, You shouldn't make uh, yourself an image or an idol and bow down to that. And so, the first two are kind of about God's right it's about loving God, it's about keeping God where he deserves to be. Because God is the king of the universe. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God above all. He is the one that delivered this people out of Egypt. He's the sovereign Lord. We've been singing about that this morning. And this is the first two commands. Love God. Keep him first and foremost. Have no other gods. Then we get the next two commandments. So the first two are kind of about God's rights. Love God. The next two commandments. We get this from verse 11 uh, right through to verse 15. So the third commandment is don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. Now, this one's interesting because if you grew up around church or church people, you might have heard the third commandment be, don't use the the Lord's name in vain. And you might have grown up thinking that's about not saying, oh my God, or Jesus is a swear word, which I think are really good practices. But this third command's not actually about that. This third command, to, to misuse someone's name in the ancient world was to misrepresent them. It was kind of an ambassador idea. So to misuse the name of the Lord is saying, I represent God, but I'm not going to treat you like God would. Right? So an example of this might be if you say you follow God and then you abuse someone, that's misusing the name of God. That's the idea here. To represent God is to help people flourish the way that God wants for them, to share the goodness of God. Which is interesting because in Genesis, this is what image of God meant. You are meant to reflect the goodness of God on other people. So the third command then, you can see to misuse the name of God, is to love God and to love others. Then you get the Sabbath, the fourth command, and this one's good too because you know, it's built into their nation that you've got to rest. On the seventh day, you've got to rest. And, and that rest is all about loving God, you know, enjoying God, worshipping God, remembering That God is the one that works, and we don't need to work. We're not in control. He's in control. You are meant to stop working to remember God. But notice here, it's not just about loving God. It's also about loving others. In verse 14, it's not just you who needs to stop, but your business that needs to stop. Your household, your son, your daughter, your donkeys, everything needs to stop so that other people can rest as well. So the third and the fourth command are kind of this middle point. Love God and love others. And then the final commands are all about loving others. And these are kind of obvious. You know, honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It's all about loving other people. So here are the 10 commands. The Ten Commandments, they're all about loving God and loving others. And these were the ten things that God calls his people to in response to the covenant that he had made with them. Right? This is their response that they're supposed to make. God has chosen you, loved you, showed grace to you, and your response, love him and love other people. Now, as we get to the end of the Ten Commandments, it is worth asking this question, what's the significance of these Ten Commandments? You know, what's the significance? Because we've all heard of them before. Right? It's, it's common practice to hear people talk about the Ten Commandments. So what's, what's the importance here? Well, the importance of the Ten Commandments is, I think we've seen it, to show us that God's people are to symbolize and represent loving God and loving others. Right? That's significant. It's also significant because these were the first ten things that God's people had at Mount Sinai. So they get out of Egypt and on Mount Sinai, which was also called Mount Horeb, God gave them these ten things as kind of, this is your nation. Okay, so that's significant as well. It's also significant for how countercultural this is. You know, this nation, this people of God, are meant to be all about loving other people. Not walking around going, what are my rights? But going, how can I care for the rights of others? So it's significant for those reasons. But outside of that, I think it's actually possible that we overplay the significance of the Ten Commandments. In fact, from this point on, for the rest of the Bible, the Ten Commandments don't appear all together as one big group. You get little bits of it, which we'll see later on today, but not as the whole thing. And for the ancient Jew, the Israelite, back in the day, whenever they talked about the Ten Commandments, it was always in the context. In fact, if you're talking law as an Israelite, you wouldn't think Ten Commandments. You'd think first five books of the Bible and all of the way of life that God calls you to. In fact, in Deuteronomy, if you want to look at the way of life God calls his people to, here's 15 verses of the Ten Commandments. In a few chapters' time, we're going to get 14 chapters on how they're supposed to live. It is possible that we've overplayed the significance of the Ten Commandments. They were always meant to be seen in the context of covenant, in the the fact that God chose his people and called his people to love him and love other people. At no point in history... Was it ever meant that someone could say that they're an atheist and be a good Christian because they've done the Ten Commandments? It's never meant to be what it's like. It's always been God chose his people and this is their response. So what does God want for his people? Number one, it's commands in the context of covenant. That's what God wants for his people. But as we keep moving, we see that that's just a starting point. In fact, the Ten Commandments are like vows at a wedding. You know, if a husband and wife get up at a wedding and they give their vows to each other, If they think that that's the hard bit done, they're kidding themselves, right? Because that's the easy bit. The hard bit happens when you get home from the honeymoon or even on your way to the honeymoon is where the hard bit begins. The 10 commandments are kind of like that. It's the beginning point. And we see this because of what we're about to see next. The second thing God wants for his people, which is the response in the context of relationship. And whenever you think relationship, Whenever you think relational response, it's never about rules, is it? You know, it's not about rules. It's about a heartfelt response from the depths of who we are. And this is what we see. So chapter 5 goes on from verse 23, and we see their first heartfelt response, which is to see God in the right way, to fear Him. We see this from verse 23. When When you heard the voice, Moses goes on, out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, All the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me, and you said, The Lord our God has shown us His glory and His majesty, and we have heard His voice from the fire. Today, if we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them, but now why should we die? The great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For What mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of a fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. So the second thing God wants from his people is response in relationship, in the context of relationship, which means, first and foremost, getting it right who we're in relationship with. You see that here? They're starting to see God in the right way. They get that. Right? That's the, the sense here in this voice. It's like, who are we that God should speak and we don't die? That the living God would speak to us and we actually survive? They're getting who's speaking to them. This is the living God, the creator of all things, the one who brought them out of Egypt, who defeated Sihon and all. This God is speaking out of a fire and they haven't died. They're getting the bigness of God, the magnitude of God, And they're fearing him because they're seeing him in the right way. But this fear is healthy. And this fear is good. This fear of God. And God tells us this. From verse 28, we see this. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. God says it's good that they get this sense of who God is. And then you get the tone of God's voice here. In verse 29, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep me always, so that it may go well for them and their children forever. God is kind of saying in this moment, man, if they only just had this picture always. If only they would fear God always. If only they would see the bigness, the magnitude of God. See, God is not your mate, right? He's not the teacher. He's not the guy in the clouds with a harp. He's not the gentle guy with a lamb on his shoulders. He's the living God. He's the God of all things, of all creation, of everything. He created it all. And he holds our breath in his hands. Every breath we breathe is God's. And here the people get this. And they know this. They sense this fear. Yes, God loves them and chose them and formed this covenant with them, but he's also God. He is not to be stuffed with. So they fear him, and God says it's good that they fear him. It's good that they get this. So the heartfelt response is, first of all, seeing God in the right way. And then secondly, it's loving God from the depths of our heart, loving Him with everything. And we see this in chapter 6. So chapter 6, 1 to 4, he repeats this idea that we've seen so much. Hear the Lord your God. If you do, you'll live. But then verse 4 is where we see this heartfelt response. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you're walking along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on door frames of your houses and on your gates. God is inviting them to get this deep in their hearts that the response God wants is an all-in response. Love Him with everything, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. Now you see why the Ten Commandments are just a starting point. You see why we might have overplayed the Ten Commandments a little bit, because if you think that all God wants is this 10 things that you can tick off a box, it's, so, it's falling so far short of what we see in chapter 6 here because God is inviting His people to give all of themselves, not just part. And what happens if you've got this list that you've got to tick off? That's rules. And what happens if, if rules bind your relationship, it becomes burdensome and crushing. But if a relationship's not marked by rules but by promises, it's different. And God says, I promise to be with you and the response you're called to is to love him with all that you've got. Now these verses here are really significant verses in the life of an Israelite. It these verses in chapter four, uh, 6 verse 4 to 9 are called the Shema. And for an Israelite, Shema literally means he uh, in Hebrew it means to hear and these verses even today in 2021 are still a prayer that israelites would pray over and over again in fact they'd pray it four to five times a day right at this moment these words in chapter six four to nine and the reason was to get it deep in their hearts to impress it you know you get that sense the imagery he's saying it's like write it on doorframe so everywhere you go you see this And so they'd say this so many times. It's like when they close their eyes at night, they'd be reminded of all that God is and all that he wants for his people. And what does God want from his people? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's no other God. And also, he wants all of you, all of your hearts, everything that you've got. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. God is inviting his people to give all of themselves Right? So God doesn't want half-hearted followers. He doesn't want half-hearted people. He doesn't want people that take his good stuff and then do whatever they want for the rest of the time. God wants his people to be all in, and this was always the case. From the beginning, he's all in, he loves his people, and then he calls his people to respond in a way that's also all in. So you see here, right? So firstly, what God wants for his people, commands in the context of covenant. Secondly, response in the context of relationship. God wants all of his people. He doesn't want a people that just do the right things, that just do rules. He wants them to love him from the depth of who they are, to see him in the right way that he's God, and to love him with everything. So first, commands, context, of covenant second relationship and the context uh, response in the context of relationship but the final thing we see in this passage is the third thing God wants for his people which is faithfulness in the face of prosperity now this is I don't know it's interesting because in Deuteronomy he's about to say it's going to get good for you it's about to get really good And what God wants for his people is when they enter prosperity that they would be faithful in this. God wants this response not just in the present as they're on the grass looking over the road to the promised land, but when they're there. And we see this from verse 10. It says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, he says in verse 14. And then verse 16, he says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the rest of the chapter talks about this idea of listen to God and you'll live. Don't listen to God and you will die. But do you hear what he's asking from his people? You see what he's asking from them? He's asking for faithfulness in the face of prosperity. Now, what is that? Right? Why is... Why is he asking this? Why is he warning them of this and saying, be careful about this? Because isn't it when we've got prosperity, isn't that meant to be the easy moments of life? You know, when our bank account's full, when we've got savings that will cover us for a little while, when we've got a job that's secure, isn't that when it's meant to be easy for us? Why is there this warning here? Well, there's the warning here because he's saying, it's not just in darkness it's not just in difficult times that it's difficult to follow god but it's in prosperity that often the temptation to give up on god is louder and the temptation to give in to those other things and be half-hearted is stronger because if you've got vineyards that you didn't build houses that you live in that you didn't put together food on your table that you didn't make if you eat and you're satisfied the lie is this you don't need god If your bank account is strong, you don't need God. He's not in control. You are in control. And what happens is money and wealth gives us our security and our sense of safety and our comfort. And so even if we wouldn't call money a God, functionally that's how it acts because we look to our money as the one who gives us security and safety and comfort and joy. And it's in prosperity that that temptation is louder. And that lie is stronger. And so God gives them this warning. What he wants from his people is not just faithfulness when life is difficult, not just faithfulness when they're waiting for the next good thing, but when they're in it. He wants faithfulness in the face of prosperity. He wants all of their hearts all of the time, both now and into the future. So so you see, we get to the end of chapter 6, and you see here what God wants from his people. He wants commands in the context of covenant, the relationships formed. He wants a response in the context of relationship. And then he wants faithfulness in the face of prosperity. But as we get to the end of Deuteronomy 6, we do want to ask this question once again. Okay, so what, have, what does it mean for us? How do we, what do we do with this chapter as we finish it, as we read this? What do we do with this? What do we do with the commandments? How do we understand this? Well, we have been on this journey uh, over the last couple of weeks of practicing how to read the Old Testament. And, and the way that we do that is we go original context, Jesus, and then us. So let's, let's go on that journey again today. So firstly, what does it mean for the original people, for an Israelite sitting on the grass? Well, I hope it's obvious and I hope it's clear. What God wants is not all-in response. Okay, that's, that's obvious. He wants them to love him with everything that they've got, with all of their heart, And if they do, they're going to find life. And if they don't, they'll find death. He wants them to remember God established this relationship, and their response is because of that. That's what God wants. That's what it means for the original audience. Secondly, we ask the question, how does this point us to Jesus or fulfilled in Jesus? Well, if you could sum up Deuteronomy 5 and 6 like this, commands, heart, and money, there's this moment of Jesus' life where those things come up again. And it's in Matthew 19. So if you've got your Bibles there, I encourage you to flick over to Matthew 19, although I will have it on the screen as well. But there's this moment for Jesus where this stuff comes up again, and it's fascinating to go on this journey of seeing how this is fulfilled in Jesus. So it's Matthew 19, verse 16, where you get this ruler or this man comes up to Jesus and he asks him, in verse 16, what must I do, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, do you hear what he's asking there? How am I good enough for God? What does God want from me so that I can get eternal life? And how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds in verse 17. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, Jesus' response, he does, it's not as straightforward as it seems, okay? Because Jesus knows this man's heart. And he's not saying that he's not good, he's not saying he's not God, but what he's doing is calling this man's flattery. You know, the man comes up to Jesus, and he's like, good teacher, right? You're really good, tell me, how do I get life? And Jesus sees through the flattery and says, don't call me good. And then he points him back to the commandments. But the man responds. He responds in verse 18, he says, which ones Right, you see what he's asking. He's like, "No, tell me exactly what I've got to do to get to eternal life. Tell me the rules that I've got to keep that it's good enough for me to get to life." So you see this exchange. You see what's going on in this man's heart. How does Jesus respond to that? Verse 18, he continues. Jesus replied, "You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself." So He asks, no, tell me explicitly which ones, and then Jesus goes to the Ten Commandments. But not all of the commandments. So what's Jesus doing here? Why does he only go to some of the commandments? Well, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to remind this man of the context of Deuteronomy 5 and 6. See, no Israelite would ever take the Ten Commandments out of its context, and I think what was happening here is Jesus going, okay, let's go, Deuteronomy 5 and 6, you remember? Let's go to that. You remember Deuteronomy 5 and 6? Now, it's fresh in our minds. What comes after this moment? It's not just do these things and you'll be sweet before God. The next moment after the commandments is Deuteronomy 6, where God asks people to love them with everything. But let's see if that's kind of what's happening here. So he says, do these commandments. You know what it's like. And then in verse 20, he says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now, that's kind of interesting that he's saying that because he comes asking, what must I do to get eternal life? And then Jesus tells him, and he says, I've done that. But then he still feels like he's not right. You know, that, that is the reality for rules and really religion. If you think that what you do gets you to heaven, it's never going to give you assurance. It never does. This guy was a good guy but he still has this sense within him that there's something that I lack. There's something here that I'm not right. I don't know, tell me, how do I know that this is true? And then Jesus responds, and if you've got commands, heart, wealth, in Deuteronomy 5 and 6, Jesus does that here. Commands first, and then he goes after his heart and his wealth in 21. And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, selling your possessions doesn't make you perfect. That's not what is required to get to eternal life. We know that throughout the Bible. But here, what Jesus is doing is going after this man's heart. And his heart is his wealth, because he's got great wealth. And he says, if you want to get eternal life, get rid of the things that have your heart and come and follow me. And what you get in Matthew 19 is Jesus showing us something so powerful. He's showing us that from Deuteronomy 5 and 6, that the Ten Commandments are still good things to do because the Ten Commandments are about loving God and loving others. But Jesus also shows us these commandments will never make you right before God. You need something else for that. In fact, the rest of the passage, which is a famous one, They kind of go, well, who's going to enter eternal life because it's really difficult for wealthy people to get there? And Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus shows us how to be right with God. It's through him, through his life and death and resurrection. Jesus also shows us in this passage that what God wants for us and for his people is their whole hearts. You know, Deuteronomy 5 and 6 about loving God with everything. That's what Jesus wants. He doesn't want half-hearted people. He wants all-in people. And finally, Jesus shows us of the warning of wealth. That the warning from Deuteronomy 6 is the warning that's still true in Jesus' day that wealth has this unique ability to steal your heart, to divide your allegiance, so that you can go after heart, after money, half-hearted, living for money, using God, and there is a real danger. Jesus shows us that's true as well. So you see how Deuteronomy 5 and 6 points us to Jesus. So first, original context, then Jesus, then finally us. What does it mean for us? Well, in this passage, there's a number of different ways that we could go in this. We're not going to spend time thinking about the commandments today. I'm sure there's natural application there. You know, if In case it wasn't clear, don't murder people, right? That's still true for us today. There's some other things there as well, honor your father and mother, stuff that probably we should consider a little bit more because it's all about loving God and loving others, but we're not going to go there. We're also not going to spend much time on the wealth aspect. Even though we live in one of the most prosperous countries in the world where prosperity is here and the temptation to give up on God is loud and difficult, to be half-hearted, to put our trust in money rather than God, that's present for us, but we're not going to go there this morning. Instead, what we're going to spend most of our time on is this line in Deuteronomy that Jesus shows us is still true and is still true right now, which is love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. Because this is true for us right now that what God wants from us in this present day, in this present moment, is all of us. He wants all of you. God isn't interested in half hearted followers. He doesn't want people that just turn up on a Sunday and for the rest of the week do whatever they want. God isn't interested in people that are just here out of obligation. God isn't interested in half-hearted people that just serve because it's the right thing to do or are here because their parents force them to be here. God isn't interested in half-hearted people. He wants all of you. He wants all of your heart. And he wants all of your heart because that's the response to him. And the fact that God gave all of his heart to you. You see this, when Jesus died on the cross, that was him giving all of himself to us. And the response, he wants all of us. All in. All of the time. Now I want to say here at Southside, over the last you know, time that I've been here, over the last few years particularly, we've seen people do this. I've watched people give all of themselves in ways that are seen and unseen. This has happened over and over again at our church where people have served above and beyond, where people have done things that no one else would know about them doing those things, where people have given beyond their means, where people have pushed into this space, where people have prayed on hours on end for our church and no one ever notices, no one ever sees that. People have done this here at Southside where they've given all of themselves. So so this is... True, we've seen this here at our church. But I guess in the the fact of what Deuteronomy's doing, that it's talking about the future, it's talking about what comes next. And there's this encouragement this morning that if you've been giving all of yourself, continue to give all of that because that's what God wants from you. He wants all of your heart. And if you haven't, there's this beautiful invitation to come near and give all of yourself to Him. where we love the Lord our God with all of... All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our our strength, all that we've got. This is what God wants from us. He wants all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you that it's good. Thank you that any response that we make is in response to all that you've given us. And God, we pray this morning that as we consider the response that we are being invited to make, that you would help us see that you do want all of our hearts, that you want all of us. We thank you that there's something beautiful in that and there's a real challenge in that. And we pray for your grace and your wisdom and your help as we move forward in our lives to feel the encouragement in difficult times or in times of wealth to continue to give all that we've got. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.